Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Lastly, we love babies. So baby noises, keep them in here. We want them. I'm not looking at you for any other reason than there's a baby. And we want to say, don't ever feel pressure to like go out because we like the noises. And we love questions. And so we actually are going to do a, a bit of a Q&A after we're done. If you want to text in a question, that's the number, or there will be microphones roaming. And again, it's not because the answers are that great. I'm not some expert, um, but it's because we really honor the questions. And we think Jesus uh, encourages us to be really curious about the things that we're uh, immersed in and wrestling with when it comes to our faith. If you are new, we are, you've caught us in the middle of a series of conversations around one verse, John 3.16. And it's kind of the most famous Bible verse out there if you're going to write one. Um, well, at least when I was growing up, they used to have big sheets that you'd hang up behind the goalposts, and it would always say John 3.16. Um, this was the one that you would use. And we're just going through it very, very slowly, kind of two words at a time, as an excuse to dive into some of the really most important topics about the gospel that we, you know, believe and hold on to and represent. And so it's been very, um, I mean, we did For God So Loved the World is where we're at today. So we want to talk about the world. Go ahead and put up John 3.16, David, if you would. Remember last week we talked about the, the, the word so, when it says so God, God so loved the world. The word so there doesn't mean how much. It means in this way he loved the world that he sent his son. So the motivation for the whole Jesus project wasn't you guys are all horrible and I've got to clean up this mess or I hate you but you know I really want to punish someone and I'll take it out of my son Jesus. It was oh God actually loves and, and the object of his love is the world, of which, of course, you and I are a part. Now, when we talk about the world, I was warned very early about something called worldliness. Have you ever heard this word? Um, worldliness is bad. And, and people, and, and the Bible is interesting because it has verses like John 3.16, God loved the world, but then it has this one from 1 John, where it says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If, God lo- if, if anyone loves the world, the love for the Father is not in them. So evidently God loves the world, but we're not supposed to. I mean, that's a pr- pretty bold statement. Do not love the world or anything in it. Or in the book of James, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Okay. That clears it right up, right? One of the things that's super interesting when you get into the word world and show it, let's show it off. Cosmos is how you say that in Greek. And obviously we get cosmos from it in English. The world, that word has three different shades of meaning. All right, and it's really, really important that you understand the nuances because I was always told if it wasn't Christian, it was bad. Right? If it's from the world, if it's secular, it's bad. And I'm not sure that exactly represents the scripture's teaching on this. So, the first nuance of the word world is this. It just means the created order. In Acts 17, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. What does world mean there? The God who made the world, the earth, the created order, correct? Secondly, the inhabited earth. So the first nuance is just the created order, both human and otherwise. This nuance is about the humans in the created order, the inhabited earth, the human community called the nations. Mark 16, he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So a world, in that sense, means go to the human communities scattered throughout the globe and preach the gospel. Are you with me? These first two senses of world are good. So you're supposed to be 
worldly in this sense, right? Because we're part of the created order and we're stewards of it, because we're part of the human family and we're witnesses to it. So being worldly in that sense is good. It's the third sense that that world becomes a bad thing. And in this way, world means the organized system of human civilization that is actively hostile to God. And that's what the first John passage and the James passage were drawing attention to. And, and the world in this way consists of three elements. First is fallen human nature. Secondly, that we love to collect and organize cultural structures. And then thirdly, the principalities and powers. You whip all that together and you get the world, meaning the hostile elements of human culture. They're antithetical to the work of God in the world. Are you with me? So in John 3.16, when it says, For God so loved the world, which meaning is John meaning? The second one, right? God loves the human community, the inhabited world that he sent his son, right? That whoever believes in his son will not perish but have eternal life. Are you with me so far? Certainly. Oh, that's wonderful. Rarely happens. Now, we're going to spend the next mm, 20 minutes going over a set of slides that adds one really important clarification to this, all right? And that clarification is going to cause a boatload of questions that we're going to leave lots of time for. So the, the, the teaching part's maybe 20 minutes. It usually goes way longer than that. The Q&A part will be much bigger because not everyone's going to agree with where this sucker's headed, all right? So, here's the clarification. Oh, and sometimes you've got to sit down to clarify. World does not mean all of non-Christian culture. But that was what I was told growing up. There are two options for things, sacred and secular. If it's secular, it's bad. Those of us who are really holy have ministry jobs the rest of you pagans have secular jobs. <laughs> and what a load of kids. Crap, that is. I mean, absolutely bogus. But music, you can't listen to secular music. You can only listen to Christian music. You go into a Christian bookstore, and hey, I'm a big fan of Guns N' Roses. No, you're not. Here's Petra. hypothetically. <laughs> and so I was always told that the problem, the problem is out there, and out there is what I'm supposed to be warned against, afraid of, and scared of becoming, all right? So the idea of the world in all three senses doesn't mean all of non-Christian culture. That's actually found in the Bible. Because the Bible quotes non-Christians all over the place in service to the message of the gospel. Here are just a couple of examples. Paul stands before the Athenians in Acts 17 and says, God did this so that they, the non-Christian world, would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And then Paul quotes a guy who's quoting a poem to Zeus. For in him we live and move and have our being. That comes from the Cretan philosopher Epimenides. He wrote it about Zeus. Paul says, you know what? That's a great way to say that. I'm going to use it in service of Jesus. And then he does another one. He says, as some of your own poets have said to the Greeks. So he quotes a Greek poet. We are his offspring. Again, talking about Zeus. But this is from the Sicilian and you never match a Sicilian in a battle of wits, ever. From the Sicilian Stoic philosopher, Aratus. Now, in your inspired Bible are quotes from people who did not believe in the one true God. So evidently, Paul was familiar with their writing or their art or their poetry, and he didn't agree with them on every point, but he came across something and went, oh yeah, and he would take it and claim it and then use it for his message about Jesus. Are you with me? 
So evidently, not everything that is non-Christian is bad. Or you, uh, Jude does this. Oh no, go, yeah, well, I forgot Titus, sorry. Titus, we can't skip Titus. So Titus is ministering to the Las Vegas of his world, the island called Crete. It's like eternal spring break. And Titus is a young pastor, and Paul's giving him all sorts of advice. And he's like, dude, you got it hard. One of Crete's own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, and lazy gluttons. And he quotes Epimenides again. Now, it's just interesting that there were things floating around Paul's culture where Paul would go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Grab that, claim it, and then use it to argue for the one true God. Jude, hey, but even the archangel Michael, so dumb, so dumb. You know what, Justy? So my wife had knee surgery. And so, yeah, I know, she's on crutches. And she just sort of sits on the couch and commands. As she should. To which I said, well, what's different? Um, no, I'm just teasing. Yeah, 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 totally, totally, totally. I know, I'm just teasing. All right, hey Jude. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And that comes from an apocryphal book called The Assumption of Moses. Okay, none of us know about this book, but evidently Jude did and said, yeah, let's quote that. So there's this thing, at least in some Christian circles, maybe not for you, that looked at all of non-Christian culture as the world in the third sense. And it all has to be resisted and you can't enjoy any of it because that would make you worldly. What we wanna do is say, that's too easy. That's not the posture that Jesus' people are actually invited into. Go ahead, next slide. We want to be careful of the danger of labels. Are there things that claim to be Christian that aren't? Oh yeah. Are there things that are labeled non-Christian that are Christian? Yeah. So the whole Christian industrial entertainment complex that says we got to stamp everything with a cross to make it safe for the whole family is actually short-circuiting the most important thing that the church is to be doing in an ongoing way, namely to discern for itself what parts of Christian culture and non-Christian culture are to be resisted. Some people call that deconstructing, I call that discipleship. Next slide. What does Paul tell us? Do not conform to the pattern of this world. Now which sense is Paul using world here? Yeah, the third sense, the, the active hostility sense of the word. Do not conform to the patterns of the human structures that are actively hostile to God, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. So God's will is something that you test and approve. In other words, we don't just rely on the labels to do all the work for us, as Paul says in Thessalonians, test everything and hold on to the good. And he says that verse within the church, he's talking about how people like give prophecies in the early church gathering, and he says, make sure you test those, because it doesn't matter if it's in a church, that doesn't make it Christian. So it's, it's so easy for us to just look out on the world and have a big old us and them, sacred, secular, Christian, non-Christian, and call it a day. But that is not at all the posture that we're invited into as followers of Jesus. We are to sift and to sort and to test and to not trust the labels because there are things that are good and true and beautiful in non-Christian culture, like ice cream. 
There are things that are neutral in non-Christian culture, like ice cream, and then there are things that are bad in non-Christian culture, like ice cream. I have a complicated relationship with ice cream, as you can tell. <laughs> One of the things, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know. What's that? Yeah, I keep testing it, nice, yes, I keep testing. God, is this of you? That's so good. Oh, so good. So good. Yes, yes. And I keep approving too. That's the problem. <laughs> so, so for some of us, this isn't news, but for others of us, this is like kind of a big unwinding of a way that we were taught to see the world. Because the world was meant everything that wasn't Christian was bad. That's not what the world means. There are elements absolutely that have to be resisted. But there are other elements, go ahead and throw up the R's. The R's. There are other elements of Christian and non-Christian culture that we receive. There are other elements of, of Christian and non-Christian culture that we reject. And there are other elements of Christian and non-Christian culture that are meant to be redeemed. And redeeming here just means that we provide a more compelling story and picture of that thing. Are you with me so far? Okay, the question becomes, how do you know what to receive, reject, and redeem? And this is where, as Christians, we disagree with each other a lot over this. And we also disagree with each other how best to receive, reject, or redeem everything. So I don't ever want to be, because I don't think the Bible does, I don't think the Bible, like, tries to envision every scenario Christians are going to be in and then gives us laws for that, I think what the Bible invites us into is something called wisdom or discernment. And this is a Greek word that we met during the Sermon on the Mount. It's the Greek word krino. And it means to cut or to separate. Krino can be good or bad. Jesus rules out the kind of krino that judges people and condemns people. But he encourages the kind of crino that examines things, ways of living, ways of believing, and sifts them into helpful, not helpful, good, bad, right, wrong. Doesn't do that with people. Only God does that with people. That's hard for us because we want to think that the people who hold the wrong opinions are themselves evil. But God invites us into something much different than that. We are to sit with both what we hear in the church and what we hear outside the church and to test it. Some of it we receive, some of it we reject, some of it we redeemed. Are you with me? Awesome. Now, here's the part. If you are not disagreeing yet, you may in these next five minutes. Because what I want to do is give you at least the matrix that I use. And it's not the only one, nor is it the best one, but this is the one that I use about how to live in this culture that we're called to discern. So here are just three kind of North Stars that I use. You do not have to use these. You don't have to buy these. Obviously, I think they're biblical or I wouldn't share them, but I've, there are people who are going to disagree. Great. Hallelujah. Are you ready? And for some of you who've been here a while, you've heard these before. North Star number one, if it doesn't act or look like Jesus, it's not Christian. End of story. Doesn't matter what it says or what it sings or what it claims for itself. Jesus is the supreme revelation of God and Jesus on the cross is the supreme revelation of Jesus. So if something that claims to be Christian isn't full of the enemy love, kindness to the just and unjust alike, humility, forsaking power kind of Jesus, then it's not Christian. The only, the only thing that deserves to be called Christian is the upside down nature of Jesus' love and use of power. And that, I mean, that kind of speaks a little bit, right? Because there's a lot that claims to be Christian that doesn't look or sound or act like anything like Jesus. And so I want us, when we run into that, to be skeptical of its claims for itself. Make sense? 
Again, you don't have to buy it. These are just my North Star. So anytime I'm coming across something that says it's Christian, how does it act when people disagree? Does it use coercive power? Is it concerned with platforming and power games? Does it resist humility and weakness? And people can be Christians in it. I'm just saying the thing itself isn't Christian, unless it embodies the Jesus on the cross. Second North Star, we've talked about this one. I think in the Bible it's more important for the church to be faithful than it is to be effective. Here's what I mean. When you read the letters to the churches, the focus is not at all about how the church should transform the world. The focus entirely is on how the church should be transformed into the image of Jesus. One of the real traps of our beautiful democratic system that we all get to participate in is that it's very easy to believe that the role of the church in the world is to transform the world into the likeness of the church instead of being the people who themselves are being transformed into the likeness of Christ. I love you so much. And, and, and people will really press back on this and say, no, no, our job is to win the world and the way we win the world and the way we you know, fight for what's ours and the way we do all the things. And, and I just, when I, when I read the New Testament, the object of all of the commands is not the world. It's not the people who don't know Jesus. It's the people who do, to actually live in a way that's so compelling those outside are one to the idea of Jesus because of the faithful embodiment of the community, not because of its preaching or its words. So when we look at the church, we've excused all kinds of behavior because look at how many people are coming to Jesus. It's effective. But then we find out it was rotten to the core. Which, which is the greater heresy there? I just want to, I just want to throw out the possibility that I'm not to go out into the world thinking I'm the gift to everybody. I'm to go out into the world receiving everybody as a gift to me. Because my focus is becoming more like Jesus. Now, becoming more like Jesus takes me into the world with good news. But the good news isn't, hey, I have something you need. The good news is, okay, starting with me, there's a great remaking taking place that this Jesus fellow started, and you would not believe how beautiful this guy turns out to be. That's so much different than what I was taught, which was, I have the truth, and the most loving thing I can do for you is tell you the truth. And there's a time for that, absolutely. There's a time it's unloving not to speak. But we're never, and, and again, disagree, but we're never commanded to speak the truth in love. Now, there's a verse that says, Mike, there's a verse that Paul says, speak the truth in love. Totally. The problem in that verse is that there's no verb for speaking in the verse. The only verb there is truthing. So speak the truth we've taken to mean, I can't love you unless I tell you I disagree. But the verse actually says, truthing in love, and then it goes on. So truthing is the verb. And Paul, a couple of verses later, talks about what truthing looks like, which is the community embodying the love of Jesus for the world. Again, you don't have to buy this. Check it out yourself. But I just want to suggest that so much of our culture warrior-ness that's going on right now takes us away from what would actually provide a real witness to our world, which is Jesus' people who actually look like Jesus. You know what I mean? Because we have let so much into the church, how could people take our sexual ethics seriously when every week there's a new platform speaker who did horrible things? We don't even look like Jesus. Why would they believe that they could? Now again, that's not true of all of us. I'm speaking very, very oversimplifiedly. 
But, there, but there's a sense in which what it means to be faithful is that the object of God's work is me. So when I'm reading the New Testament, I'm not thinking about all the people out there that need help. I'm thinking about, oh, dang, I got a lot to do. And if I'm approaching people in the world from that humble space, then they'll receive my truthing as love. Make sense? Because I'm the object, not them. Third thing, and then it's Q&A time, baby. And again, lots of disagreement on this one, but I just want to say this. There is nothing so important happening in our world that we need to stop being Christians to do or to fix. If Christians are people who've taken up their crosses, denied themselves, and followed Jesus, then there is no thing that is so important in the world that requires us to stop acting like Jesus to fix. But I was told, and I still believe this, that, okay, true, but if I've got to win my child or my spouse or my coworker to Jesus, then it's okay to be a little pushy and naggy. It's all right. Or if our culture is going down the toilet, it's okay to be vocally demonizing and enemy-making in order to get my point across. And I just want to suggest, like, any time we see the commands of Jesus getting in the way of the perceived agenda of Jesus, then we have, I have, fallen far from what it is that Jesus intends to do in the world. Are you with me? So, are there parts of culture that we reject? Absolutely. But what do we do with those? Do we sit in angry judgment? Or does the scripture kind of narrow our range of responses to things like forgiveness and confession and lament and faithfulness and humility and generosity and kindness and hospitality? See, we, we're bounded by the ethic of Jesus that says we're to love enemies. And so whatever our responses are to things in culture, enemy making can't be one of those. Now, who loves that? Nobody. I love enemy making. I feel like it's my Christian duty to be right and let others know that I'm right. And we're just painting a picture perhaps that it's a little different than that. And our relationship to the world that God loves is more complicated than just declaring it's all bad or that it's all good, but rather we sit in this paradox and tension of some of it's good and some of it's bad and how do we know and we disagree how to best handle this? So for me, the three North Stars in that process, or it's gotta look and act like Jesus to be called Christian. The, the text of the New Testament is about me and my church, not about all the bad people out there. And then even when I engage in part of resisting cultural pressure, I do that in a way that doesn't add to the demonization, polarization, and antagonism that's already out there. Any questions? We've got 17 minutes. We don't have to do all of that, but there were loads of questions in the last service, so. Can you just clarify one thing? Somebody's yes. asking if you could repeat the points you made about speaking the truth that actually means truthing. Yes. So if you go, uh, Bible nerds unite, okay? Um, the, the verb for truth is in the participle form, which means it's an ing. So Paul invents a word called truthing. He doesn't ever say speaking there. He says truthing. Now we add speaking because it makes sense. But because it's a participle, it's truthing. And then if you read the, read the verses after it, it talks about the truth that is Jesus of Nazareth and how the community embodies it. So we think of truth as abstract belief statements and propositions. Paul thinks of truth as a person that we bear witness to. 
Now that includes propositions, absolutely, absolutely. But it doesn't just stop there. Does that help? I think so. I don't know. Anything you want to talk about, you don't have to. Oh, yes, right here, and then this young lady over there. Sambo, let's go. Like a gazelle among the lilies is Sam among the church. So how far can we go to prevent evil? Like, what's the, what's the best way about going to pre- prevent evil in the world? Oh, great. doing it the way that Jesus would have done? Because obviously there were times where he turned over the tables and, and whatnot. So yes. what do we do? Oh, so good. Okay. Man, thank you. That is such a doozy of a question. And I will not do it justice. But here's some thoughts that come into my head. When Jesus turned over tables, he did no harm. He, he engaged in a symbolic action to shut down the operating of the temple, just the, the way he cursed the fig tree. So he did not engage in violence per se. He engaged in parabolic and symbolic action which I think we're allowed to do all over the place, absolutely. The problem, and you're not doing this, I do this. The problem is when I read stories about Jesus, I read them as, as if I'm the Jesus character and that I'm trustworthy to know when tables need to be turned over and when they don't. As opposed to reading the text as if I were one of the people who were buying and selling and he's turning over the table, I'm going, oh, well maybe something isn't, do you know what I mean? So the other thing, when Jesus talks about limiting evil, he, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives a series of images about turning the other cheek and walking an extra mile. And I don't have time to review those, but they're not passive. They're not just, they're cre- they, they respond to evil with creative goodness. So like, Nate, come here a second if you would. Just real quick. Okay, in, Nate, in, in those days, stand right here. In those days, um, look at me. In those days, um, one of the ways that you would insult an inferior is with a slap. Oh, come on. Oh, we're doing it. I've seen those TikTok videos of people who just slap each other, and it looks awful. Yeah, we're going to do that. Now, no, do not film it, Mama. Nope. Now, when, when, when Jesus says, when he says, when someone hits your right cheek, turn your other one also. Now, the only way I can hit, no, you would never hit with your left hand. Your left hand was your hygiene hand and it was never used in public. The only way I can hit him is with a backhand slap. That's the only way I can hit his right cheek. The backhand slap is what social superiors would do to social inferiors, okay? Like in this instance. When Jesus says, (laughs) when Jesus says, turn the other cheek, when 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 Nate turns the other cheek, I can't hit him as an inferior. The only way I can hit him again is with my right hand on his left cheek, with the front of my hand, which is the only way you could hit a social equal. So you don't have to buy this. You know, there's the whole sermon on it. But the point is, what Jesus was inviting his disciples to do in that moment was to not just be passive, but to actually force the oppressor to acknowledge the humanity of the one that they were seeking to hit. Same thing with the cloak. When someone's suing you for your robe, give them your cloak. Now, I'm making a point with this. The idea is there were laws prohibiting nudity in Judaism. So if you gave them your cloak, you were actually shaming the person that was suing you because they were taking everything that was, yeah, you can go ahead and say, well done, Nate, great job. Great cheeks. So when Jesus says, do not, do not respond using evil for evil, he's, he's limiting our responses. Now the big debate comes with violence and so then violence as well as that in self-defense and, you know, all those sorts of things. And, and the way I understand Jesus on this point, if I'm the one in danger, um, I'm, I, I, as a follower of Jesus, I'm to take the insult, to bear the injustice to whatever. If there are things I can do to limit evil in the harm of others, I'm invited, I think, to do those things. 
But even then I would distinguish between violence and force, between trying to harm someone or restrain someone. Totally. Yes. And are you meaning like, are you envisioning sort of violent scenarios? Um, not necessarily, no. Just, uh, just any type of thing that it could be perceived as evil, not necessarily something that's violent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think we're limited by the, the response of Jesus, um, but that doesn't mean we're passive. I think Christians are to have a, a greater moral imagination than just evil for evil or getting even with somebody. Now that doesn't mean that we let our kids be harmed or we keep them in a situation that's not good. It means, however, that we resist the impulse to bring harm to those people who threaten us. Only as a last resort, then, would I respond in any way that would be forceful. Okay. That's a great question. Thanks. And there's so much more to say, man. It raises as many questions as, that's why the answers aren't that great. But the questions we really think are important. So well done. Thank you. Anything else? We got one over here, Mike. Yes, 10 more minutes. Okay, here you go. Goodness. Okay, so I was raised in the church. Both my husband and I were raised in the church. So this is, I feel hopeful for this room of people hearing this stuff because it does just turn everything on its ear in a beautiful way. And I think you said on Easter how, you know, the most compelling thing we can do as Christians is just stay curious, right? And so yes. I've had these relationships with people who did not grow up in the church in my life, um, that when I think back on conversations, it's either cringe or ultimate cringe, my responses. Um, and <laughs> obviously the foundation for a secure relationship is fe them feeling safe. You know, these people that are yeah. agnostic or genuinely atheistic or totally. th just very different lifestyles. And they're raising their kids differently. They're modeling their marriages differently, all of it. Yep. Um, when you've built that foundation of trust and safety and they come in with their curiosity, trying to figure out what the world has taught them of the church. Yeah what it looks like oh. for them, um, and they're wondering where you land. Yes. How do you go about truthing from that point? Oh. Whether it's words or not words, but they're literally sitting on your couch asking you a question. Yes. And there's that like pregnant pause of answer. And yes. ultimately, you know, I've had a situation in my life like this, and so has my sister. And yeah. it's just that verbal vomit moment where you literally watch just the eyes glaze Totally, down. totally. How do you recover it? How do you speak into it? How oh. do you be in it? Wow. Tell me all the answers. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, you guys can all discern I'm not cringy at all, ever. So that's beautiful. And, and you've identified the most important part, which is wh what we talked about last week, which is the ordering of love, right? That the way God loves us is he is committed to us and to be for us and to be with us. And then he loves us towards. And so the fact that people feel safe and curious with you, you're already doing something very, very valuable and right. And, you, and we don't want to lose that. At the same time, how do we, how do, we do true thing well? And so, not, I mean, my goodness, people can answer this way better than I can. Um, I've learned to never answer the question they're asking because the, the way it will be framed already is using terms that I wouldn't agree with. So, um, if somebody says, like, hey, what's your view on homosexuality? Are you affirming or non-affirming? I will say either, well, what do you mean by those terms? Or I will just say, yes. <laughs> and they'll sit there... And then I get to engage in a curiosity sort of conversation, right? So if somebody says, you know, um, hey, do you, I, I mean, and, and we could go over all the examples. I don't even need to, but, but I rarely answer the question as asked. I try to start way back in the story. Not because I'm, I'm trying to be cowardly, but because that my answer could easily be weaponized in their minds so that I'm either for them or against them. And I don't want, I want to be more nuanced than having my answer be weaponized than that. And so I, you know, if somebody, yeah, I mean, we could role play it, but, but I would be wrong. And I'm sure I'd say something, you know, not great, but. Nate's available for the role play. If you... Ah, Nady. <laughs> oh, yes, he is. And I have some torting I want to do with big Nate. It's about his wardrobe. Um, bay shorts, dude, come on. I know you are just sitting there. You just came home from college. Yes, you are humble. Yeah. If you have to announce you're humble, though, I mean, but that's a different question. So, so 
This is utterly not helpful. But I don't, the reason I don't want to engage using the terms is because, because it either, they will either hear it as, oh yeah, I totally buy it, or no, I think you're horrible and going to hell. And I don't mean either one of those things. I mean like, I'm really glad we're in relationship and let's keep talking about this because these are the most important issues. What it is to be human. What could it mean to be male and female? What is it to be sexual? Those are hugely cultural and important issues. And so often we shut down conversation in the name of Christian duty because we believe we have to tell somebody they're wrong before we can love them. And I don't, I don't see that. I just don't see that in the practice of Jesus. Now, maybe everyone knew because Jesus was a rabbi that they were wrong, and that was the shock when Jesus would invite someone to dinner. Okay. But somehow we've internalized that example into, I cannot be in relation with this person unless they know I really disagree with their way of life. So I try to live by this rule. And, And one other thing, I'm sorry if this is rambly. It's all rambly, but in this case... Um, I would always talk about I statements. So if I'm answering a question like that, I would say, listen, the way I understand the Christian story is that Jesus came into the world affirming a human body in all of its goodness um, and without any of its temptations. And I would, I would use a bunch of I statements, not you statements or we statements. I would just keep it all like very, this is what, this is what I'm understanding, but I'm very much in process and I've loved learning from you. Um, or one of the great things that Apple Store people do that I love is they just say, well, let's, let's, let's learn, let's figure this out together. That there's a problem they can't fix. Let's go figure it out together. I don't know if this is helpful at all. I'm just saying, I don't know that I'm, I'm instantly going to grant the, the terms that are being used in the question, not because I don't want to answer the question, but because I do. But I want to ans- answer the bigger question, which is, will you accept me? That very often is what they're asking in that moment. And I never want to say no to that. I hope that something in there was decent. Okay, well, we got it at the end. Okay, perfect. We got babies at the last second. Here's my, here's my philosophy. If I talk long enough, something will come out. All right, it's four minutes. Here we go, Mikey. Oh, it's going to be good. I don't got a question. I got sort of an answer for her. What? There's a great book, and it's called... Um, oh, come on. Um, come on. How to... It's like how to share Jesus with people. And it's a really small book. It's like super thin. Love small books. Really, really good book if you, if you want to like learn or... or, or um, Do you remember who it was by? Ah, I, I'll bring it in uh, next Sunday. If you bring it in. It's a really good book, and anyone who wants it, I got like probably like five copies. Okay, I want you to bring it in. We'll sell it. <laughs> then we'll maybe see some turning over tables. Maybe that'll, that'll work. No, that's all I got. I just think it's a really good book. I'm learning how to share Awesome. It without having, like, the awkward yes. And I appreciate your courage in sharing without knowing either the title or the author. <laughs> and so I want to affirm that. And next week you owe us a book. We have an online question. And yes. Then Justina and then Justina. And then Justina. This is a good question. Why do you think most Christian entertainment, like movies and music, is so mediocre? I'm in the music business, and it's really hard for me to reconcile this problem that our Jesus music doesn't seem to represent a great Jesus of great or great music. How can Christ-following creatives do better? Oh, might have something to do with your Petra selection. Yeah, well, no, I, I'm just saying that's what the counter said. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure they were great. I'm sure they were great. I was more of a striper guy, but that's a different story. Yellow and black attack, ladies and gentlemen. All right, I don't know. Here's kind of what I think. Um, uh, art has always been viewed, not always, for some has, has been viewed as part of the bad worldly. Art itself, not just any art, but just the practice of art, the use of imagination, the, um, all of that has, has at times been held in great suspicion. So I don't think we've encouraged Christian artists to do anything other than sell. 
And what they sell is what we want. And we don't want nuance, lament, conflict, tension. We want clear lines and good feelings. And so they're incentivized to produce art that reflects us. Whereas, like, I'm a huge fan of grunge. I grew up in that era, and I love the pessimistic outlook of the world that it's all horrible. (laughs) That speaks to me. Gen X. And that, they didn't make it to sell, it just happened to sell. You know what I mean? So if we could decouple, if we could fund, arti- fund artists so that they didn't have to sell things, I think we'd go a long way to some really beautiful Christian art. That's a great question. Justy Bear, last question. Super quick. Um, I think part of it is knowing you and knowing kind of behind the scenes stuff, but I'm at the point where if there's a Christian influencer, for lack of a better word, I just don't trust him anymore. I mean... It, just because there have been so many examples of celebrities falling. falling yeah. turning 180, and because something changed in their lives, so now, they, now they're going to yeah. say, no, this is true now. And I just... Yeah. Why and how and what? I mean, I'm just so over it. And yeah. I don't know how we, we even tackle it anymore. Oh, well, oh, yeah, Jesus has this great line. Whatever you do, in order to impress and be seen by others, then great, that's all your reward. You will impress and be seen by others. But you, Christian, go in the secret, in the quiet place. Sorry, bad Christian song. I mean, I, it was a fine song, but bad reference to a song. I know, I've got to reel it in. What were we saying? Oh, yeah, yeah, be secret. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, if someone's starting to become popular in any way, shape, or form, we can't even trust it. Okay, I, I don't know that we ought to go that far. Okay, you you be that far. I'm a little further back saying... But the dynamics, and this is where we're just not honest about the dynamics of capitalism in our world and in the church, right? When you have a financial incentive, like pastors, to act more holy than you are, and you're rewarded for that, man, the false selfing, oh. And, and in some degree, the Christian community wants that false self of you know the happy, perfect marriage and the beautiful kids and the ideal parenting because... We're called to trust people who um, are giving all of this life advice, and we'll never know if they themselves follow it, but we love it when it seems that they do. So I think there's a really beautiful, and I think social media is fine, and I think being popular is okay. I would love to try it someday. Um, no, I'm totally kidding. Um, but, but you're right, the dynamics of popularity and Christian celebrityism. Those are death, death. And those are so not, when you read the life of the Apostle Paul, man, so not the dynamics he encourages, totally. So that's why we discern. Just because someone's popular doesn't mean that they're right. Or just because someone's not popular doesn't mean that they're wrong. It's one of the things where we're constantly living in this tension of having to figure it out. But we do that together, that's the thing. In a really healthy church, the discernment happens together. So what we're going to do, great job, Susie. Great job, Justin. Great job, everyone. Uh, What we're going to do is we're going to do some formative practices that are intended to renew our minds so that we might test and approve what the will of God is. And part of that is we sit under the text. Part of that is we sing songs. And you would not believe how thoughtfully our crew thinks through the songs that we sing. There's a reason why we don't sing a lot of the, the like, humongously popular stuff. And it's not because it's all bad, but it's because it doesn't all fit us. So, so we write songs for this community. And we're very worried about the theology they represent. We practice the Lord's Supper because that is, in physical form, the summation of our new identity and job description in the world. We also pray together. And we have prayer, we have folks around the room who are standing in the back who just have little lanyards that say prayer. And that's, 
there's, there's just something powerful about a human voice interceding on our behalf when we don't have the words. Also around the room are these stations, and there at the stations, there are little pieces of paper where we write, write down prayer requests. But today I thought maybe we would wrestle with a question. And the question is simply this, and this isn't like a guilt thing or a shame thing. It's just, what are the patterns of the world that are hard for you and me to resist? Confession is the place where we just start the discernment process. So what are the patterns of the world that are hard for me to resist? And that's going to be way different than from you. But we just want to take a moment and name that, and then we take the bread and the cup to put that on instead of what it is that we're confessing and putting off. Make sense? So we're going to do a few minutes of instrumental music, and then we're going to sing. You are invited to participate however you'd like to. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God, thank you that you are so faithful to us, even in the midst of our craziness, even in the midst of our wrestles and our struggles. Lord, in the, in the, in the midst of our doubts, I'm just, I know this is all cliche language, but I genuinely believe and have experienced you to be so faithful in those moments. And so God, as we're in this massive cultural convulsion, help us to walk like Jesus. And when we don't know what that looks like, help us to still walk and ask you to walk beside us. God, we, um, we are people who really want to represent you well. And Lord, we want to be transformed to be more like you. And so to that end, Holy Spirit, we just invite your rummaging through our hearts to shed light where there is darkness and to bring healing where there is pain. So we bless you, Lord. Amen.